Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight, because this is a show you just don't want to miss. All right, everybody, I am back. I've been away for a few weeks. As you may have known, a couple episodes dropped. First time in three years that I actually had a blank spot where my show should have been. And I'm telling you, like a couple hundred episodes, never missed a hitch. But I needed a break, went away, visited Cancun, went to Cuba, and then dropped down into Dallas, Texas to do a clinic, which was amazing. And from that little bit of work we did in Dallas, I was fortunate enough to meet Miles Keller, who is an obstacle athlete extraordinaire. Had a lot of fun with these guys, and Miles was kind enough to share some of his insights from the clinic. And if I seem a little nasally, I apologize. I it's uh, We've got these Santa Ana winds going off here in California, so my sinuses are on fire. But anyway, Miles, say hello to our folks. Rich, my man. Thanks for having me, brother. I'm so glad to have you. Really enjoyed meeting you. Uh, good guy. I've said it a million times. I don't want you to think that I'm funny. But uh, <laughs> good guy, and um, I, I hope that uh, our visit together was helpful for you. Man, the pleasure was all mine, Rich. Like, you know, First of all, hey, man, thanks for coming to Texas. You could have picked anywhere in the entire United States. You know, OCR has a huge following here in Texas. We're really passionate about it, man. And you came, you came to help us, and it it means a lot. Well, and we've been to, we've been to Texas before, and we really enjoyed the trip to Austin. We were actually looking at Houston as a as a site to visit, and I got talked out of it. I was told Dallas would be a better spot, and uh, it turned out to be true. It was a good spot. Yeah, agreed, man. I'm a little biased, but I absolutely agree. Last time I was, last time I stayed in a hotel in Houston, I, my hotel room was broken into and I had a bunch of my stuff stolen by one of the guys that worked there. That's not good. Yeah, no, you chose you chose wisely. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, it was it was a good time. Met some great people, and I have to tell you, and we've spoke about this before. I really love the the community of OCR athletes, and I, I've been in athletic sport performance work for going on 30 years now and I've worked with all kinds of athletes but there's a certain mojo that's going off with these folks that is just just uncanny I mean everybody's just nice people and ambitious and eager to learn and and driven and and it's just so much fun I get different groups of athletes that I don't know I, I don't know how to put my finger on it but it's just not the same thing well, the sport is, is still growing, right? It's budding. And to have someone who has as many years of sports coaching and endurance athletics as you do to come in to kind of help uh, point us in the right direction, maybe give us 
some different ways of doing things that we haven't thought of doing so we can improve our performance. Man, that's huge, you know? You know, it's interesting you bring that up. Uh, uh, when I first met and did some work with Hunter, he came to the lab and he goes, dude, he goes, how come nobody knows about you? He goes, you could be, he could, you could easily be like the number one coach in the sport. And I'm like, what? You know, he says, no, man. He goes, I'm telling you, he goes, this stuff you're doing, he goes, this is earth-shattering stuff. I don't see this anywhere. I don't even know. He was going on and on about it. I, I thought, you know, he's just blowing smoke up my skirt. And might have been, quite frankly. But uh, I've had a lot of fun so far. It's been a couple of years now that I've been involved with OCR. And I've met a ton of people and have worked with a ton of athletes. And it's it's just really been rewarding. I, I really enjoy the sport. You know, it, the uh, one of the other things I want to mention, speaking of unsung heroes and, uh, and real talent that a lot of people know about, your wife, Lori, she helps with these clinics, and I feel like we hear as much from her, but she has amazing running form, can only, and you guys just celebrated a new anniversary. Yep. Was it 16 years, right? Happy anniversary. Thank you so much. Well, I got to tell yeah, you're right about that, and, and I, I'm glad you brought it up again because... Uh, she doesn't get the credit she deserves. She, she's super organized, man. The oh, way yeah. the emails and when she structured everyone's uh, timing schedule, when they can come in to do the VO2 test on Tuesday and then the running clinic on Sunday and everything, it was clear and concise. She's obviously caring. She's just on point, man. To have that kind of organization behind you, for someone like me who's maybe not as organized as that, probably because of the, the mean case of ADHD I go with, uh, you know, it, it means a lot, man. And she's, and then on top of that, she's really knowledgeable in sports nutrition. Yeah. Well, i got to tell you, she's been at my side in this business for a long, long time. When I met her, she was a dental hygienist and had probably, I don't know, 15 years of experience in that field at the time, and nutritional education as well. But she quit working and shouldered up with me because I needed the help, and I needed the organizational talent. And she's been a sponge. We got her into education and nutrition, because that was, you know, nutrition is an organizational task. Writing meal plans, understanding how to develop meal plans properly, getting it all right, I'm terrible at that. I'm not going to lie to you. And she is so good at that. It's one of the things you do in your classes. After, uh, usually before your VO2 max, Rich will have you do the uh, resting metabolic heart rate and kind of give you an idea of how many calories you're burning throughout a day and how much you should be eating, Lori will sit down with you and she'll just blow you away with uh, how much her knowledge of how you should be eating, but how many calories, how she reads the report that comes out from your resting metabolic heart rate. Yeah. And well, i got to tell you, she's, she's been with me in that regard working. I mean, she's been there for all of it, all of it. And, I, I mean, just shouldering up with me, and as you suggested, we've been together 16 years, so she's got 16 years of trial by fire in the trenches. And when I met her, she, she didn't run. I got her to run and worked on her form and bitched at her enough that I use her as a spokesmodel. I mean, I said, run, damn it, you know, and she'll get out there and, ah, oh, I don't really, should I really? I'm like, run. And she'll, uh, she'll surprise people with her talent. She's a very, very good runner. I've had people notice her running on the track and say what is she training for it's funny because she's not training for anything she she she's never done a race as a matter of fact next year 
she's going to do a relay at the Big Sur Marathon with a couple of the girls I, I coach. And, oh, nice. And it's the first race that she's ever signed up for in her life. So I'm hoping oh, that God. maybe she'll get a bug for it. But uh, I'm jealous of that form, man. She runs that well. impeccable form. She runs very well. A lot of times I'll... I'll pull people aside that I think need a little extra attention, and I'll, I'll put them with her, and, and she knocks it out of the park. I, I know a lot of guys that credit their their improvements in their running from the work she's done with them, so no doubt about it. I mean, she's going to hear this later, and she's, oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm helping you score brownie points. Let's do this. There's a lot of people that have trepidation, possibly a little apprehension about participating in these uh, clinics. A lot of them, I think, might feel that they're just not that cut above. They think they need to be in order to participate in something like this. And I also made the comment the other day about it's like going to the dentist, you know. Oh, God, I don't want to, you know, really? You know, can I just have teeth? <laughs> you know? and, and I also make the, the comment that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Somewhere along the way, getting organized and getting things sorted out so you can reduce the potential for injury and run better, it's a big deal, but it, it's just not as warm and fuzzy as actually participating in an event until, well, let me hear you say it. I mean, what, what was your thoughts? And I mean, I'm sure that's probably the first clinic you've attended that's anything like that, right? It, it, it absolutely was. The first thing I would tell those people is, hey, do you want to make progress? Uh, trust me, I'll get into this when we talk about the Sunday running clinic, but I thought I was coming down on my midfoot. I didn't think I was overstriding. You would be amazed at what you see when when Richard breaks down your running form, your, your stride and your gait. It's absolutely incredible as to, hey, you want to make progress. You don't have to be Hunter McIntyre. You don't have to even run in the uh, in the elite category. Do you want to do you want to be running for a long time? Do you want to be able to do this for a long time? You explained it so clear and concise is what I really appreciated about this course. You broke it down for me. I was hesitant. I was hesitant earlier as well, but now I have uh, drank the Kool Aid and I've jumped on the comet with uh, Rich Diaz after this class. But I remember before I was telling you hey, man, you know, I think I'll just go to, like, the local college or something, and I'll, I'm going to get my VO2 max tested there, and then I just want to go to the running clinic where I'll send you results, and you're like, you know, look, Miles, I've been doing this for 20 years. I really kind of need to see how the testing was done, and I can explain this to you better than anyone else can. And I got to thinking about it, and, you know, that makes sense, man. You know who's running those tests at, at universities and other places? Friggin' teenagers right? <laughs> or these college students, they don't have nowhere near the experience. But here's the most important part. They don't care, man. They don't care. They got, they got studies, uh, they got tests they got to study for, they got work to do, they got parties to go to. You know, no one is has ever taken such a deep interest as you did, Rich. And here was the determining factor, I think, that separates you from these other people that might be able to do VO2 tests. You invited everyone to stay after. Say, hey, man, don't leave. Stay, watch other people go through, and you're going to learn a whole lot. And sure enough, because at first, one of the reasons it seems so daunting is that it is a lot of jargon, a lot of acronyms. You know, for you and me, 
I have a science background and everything, so talking about carbon dioxide and, and gases, these are kind of basics, but for a lot of people, it's kind of overwhelming. And you broke it down in such an easy way that it was easy to understand, and then I had a deeper understanding of how this would apply to me. How do I put this into my training? Uh, what I really loved about it, you know, you sit there and watch this graph, which has, you know, it just has some acronyms down at the bottom and some numbers. It would be very confusing by myself. But as you let me sit there and we watched person after person do their test, you broke it down. You said, and it really got to be very simple, whereas, hey, man, one line's your heart rate. One line is the oxygen you're breathing out. The other one is the carbon dioxide you're breathing out. When you start, when you start dying is when you start breathing more carbon dioxide than oxygen going out. That's why, and then you give me simple definitions, like, hey, this VO2 max test is the test of how efficient your body uses oxygen under a heavy workload. So it was those kind of details that made such a huge difference. Rich blew me away, man. The guy, the guy could tell 30 seconds ahead of time, the guy that went after me, he could tell 30 seconds ahead of time exactly where the guy was going to blow up and started breathing more carbon dioxide than oxygen just because you've been doing this for so long. Uh, it was absolutely fascinating to see. But you genuinely give a crap, man. And you really want people to learn because you're passionate about it. You know, if you're passionate about it, you just do these classes, you wouldn't even have this this podcast, which I'm a fan of as well, by the way. <laughs> and, and sometimes, you know, listening to your podcast, man, you get into really technical terms and it does get confusing, but you also have a great way of explaining these things and making them simplistic. We sat down after and I could ask you all the questions I needed to, and then I watched other people go after me, and then slowly but surely, even the things I was confused about at first became more clear and as to why I that's actually some of the question I like to get into with you later on after we you know, maybe talk about a uh, Sunday running clinic I'm just trying to give a broad overview sure, of, my, sure. of uh, you know maybe some of the things that you can simplify for other people but uh, so that was incredible I stuck around no joke guys this test takes 15 Rich said 11 minutes it took me 15 minutes and I stuck around for four to five hours afterwards. I couldn't stop watching people doing the test. And then, you know, once again, it's the OCR community. So we all, you know, we're all really good friends. It's a really loving, supportive community. So you're seeing friends you haven't seen and things like that. So that, so that was wonderful in, in, at all. And then not to mention you're learning stuff from Lori with the nutrition. And, and then you're going over all these different incredible stories. You're dropping gems of advice and stories of athletes that have made this progress. Well, um, getting back to the qualification for the process, I think it's really important, and I'm belaboring this point because I just don't think it gets enough gravity. I'll have athletes that, you know how they get. I mean, their egos are tied to their work, and they don't want to underperform in front of people. Um... You know, they're just buggy going into the thing. And I'll have people say to me, this is kind of fun, they'll say to me, well, I'm going to wait till I get in a little bit better shape before I come to see you. And I'm thinking, well, if you can get in better shape without seeing me, save your money. You know, I'm trying to help you to get in shape. I'm trying to help you to make the right decisions so you can get in a better place. And if you're able to do that without me, then... Let's just call it a day because 
I'm going to cut to the chase. Rich Diaz doesn't pull any punches. If you're uh, if you're sensitive, <laughs> just just know that hey, Rich tells it how it is, and that, well, that yeah, co- I think the it gets in, it gets me in trouble now and then. But you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm old enough not to have to care. Um, but, uh, you know, again, uh, building on my point, if, if I, if I was to take someone, well, I'll give you as an example. I mean, we've never met, we've toyed back and forth, messaging back and forth, but we've not physically been in front of each other before. I didn't know anything about your physical prowess, but in a matter of those 15 minutes, I have a very good understanding of what your capabilities are. Yeah, I love this. Not to mention the 45 minutes I spent chewing your ear off about random stuff beforehand. <laughs> right, but but the idea is, let's just kind of put it into context. Let's just say that you're going to hire a coach. You've heard a lot of good things about this guy. He's got good history. And your relationship is new. Uh, maybe you've never met him before. He's never met you before. This whole discovery, getting to know each other, may take months to get to a better sense of what kind of things you should or should not be doing. It may take months where having prefaced the training with this test in a matter of 15 minutes, I'll know where to lead you and I'll be very precise about it. I'll know what your caloric demands are. I'll know what your energy requirements are. And so as I suggested many times, that's half the battle. Getting into the mechanical aptitude and, and the running form is the other end of it. Your mechanical efficiency and your metabolic cost of work are principally the two things that you need to concern yourself with. So these clinics are really kind of a, uh, a for those that are going to be offended by the pun, I'm sorry, I, I apologize, right? It's kind of a come-to-Jesus meeting, you know, where you come in and we're going to get things sorted out. We're going to at least have you walk away knowing what you should be aspiring to do. It may not come to you that day, but it's definitely going to be in your head. I'm going to be in your head for a while. I promise you that the majority of those folks that were at that clinic are spinning right now with some of the information that they gathered and are working at trying to correct some of the flaws that they had. And I've already gotten a lot of feedback from them, and, and they're all like, wow, man. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't get you out of my head. I'm still busy trying to make this work or... I'm working on this or that. I look at that as progress. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And if I didn't think it was, I wouldn't do it anymore. I'd, I'd go on and do something else. Yeah, I, I think it's quality, man. You know, you can Google how to determine your VO2 max. There's, there's, there's a little equations you can do and stuff like it. It's not exact, though. You want the Cadillac of results? You want, you want scientific results? Go to see Diaz. Don't go for the generic stuff, man. That's what, that's, Maybe that's just me as a scientific background and everything. I want scientific results. I want exact numbers. So I really know what areas to train in. You know, along those lines, stop me if I'm getting ahead of myself, but can you explain to people why this VO2 max training is important? Like, how would I implement these results into my training? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's do this. I just did a test on a fellow yesterday. He arranged the test early. We're doing a clinic this weekend. Uh, I don't know, the timing wasn't good for him to be here on Saturday. He's coming for the Sunday uh, hands-on. So he asked, could he schedule the test early? And so we, I saw him yesterday. Oh, cool. And now here's a fellow that his VO2 was challenged. And 
So the, the VO2 is, a, is it's referred to as the gold standard of fitness evaluation. So it's a pretty good indicator of what your fitness is or what your potential for fitness is. And he had a low number. And um, there were a lot of things about the test that threw up red flags for me. And so we sat down and we talked about it. And what I'm going to probably, well, what I did recommend to him is unique to his capacities in respect to making the types of improvements that I think are really important for him individually. And so the VO2 test for him was more about improving his fitness than it was about improving his endurance. And the two critical bits of information are where, from a heart rate perspective, is best for me to be training to improve my endurance, improve my stamina, improve my fat burning utilization. Uh, and that's a big number for most people. And I will have people come in and blow mediocre VO2 scores, be in a pretty good place physically. For him, it was unique and very, very uh, telling where, well, just going back to our visit when we, I don't know, we tested about 18 people. Of those 18 people, nobody had a low score. Everybody was kind of what I refer to as in the ballpark. They were in a pretty good place for the most part. So the training recommendations were relatively generic. Um, the, the values in respect to the way they should be training was unique to the individual. But for the most part, there was no red flags. Now, in your case, uh, lots of red flags. No, I'm kidding. No, in your case, you blew a 62, which is, uh, I call that being in the club. You get, in, you get in above 60, and it starts to get entertaining. You know, that's a, a well enough score where we could expect you to, to, to podium and, and, and pull down some, some pewter at these events. 50, sometimes that's not going to get you there. And then making do with what you have is really critical. Getting the most out of what you have is very critical because your VO2 score generally doesn't change very much once you've pretty much achieved fitness. You're not going to see these big, big moves in your VO2 score. Knowing Some people will move it though, right? Well, like, you, uh, yeah, like you're going to move. You're, you're, yeah, well, now, but let's talk about it for a second. When I first met Matt, a year ago, he blew like a 68 for me, which was a pretty high score. I think it was the highest of the day. And we got into his head. We improved his mechanical aptitude and some other things. I trained him for a bit. And lo and behold, he comes in, he blows a 74, I think it was for me, uh, a year later. Now, that's four, six, six points above where he was before, which is pretty good move. But what I'm suggesting is if I see somebody blow a 50, they're not going to come in to see me a year later and blow a 75. You're not going yeah. to see those kind of jumps. But the top-end score of a VO2 test is not the, you know, the primary indicator of your ability to win a race. Uh, and a good example of that is Hunter McIntyre only blows a few points above you, and the guy's just a stellar athlete. And I know guys that I've tested that uh, have far greater scores than he does that can't touch him in competition. So it's not the only variable that you're looking at. But again, it comes back to this, this marriage of the mechanical aptitude and the metabolic consequence of work. That's why 
I like to bring both of those elements to the table because they are the empirical bits of information that are going to point you in the right direction for your progress. That's it. So how can you how can you apply this information? One of the things I kind of learned from it, you know, you broke down my my aerobic zone. Hey, here's where you go anaerobic. Here's your aerobic zone. This is kind of the area that you should be working out in. I think that's one of the greatest takeaways from it is that you're getting. And you know, plus there's other coaches out there that like to do their training based upon heart rate zones, right? How uh, how do you feel about how that information should work into a workout plan? Well, um, I've been a rebel all my life, you know, aside from being kind of uh, starchy out of the out of the gate with my with my mannerisms and what have you. Uh, I've never really appreciated the way most heart rate specific coaches approach the work. For example, and I've had him on my show. Well, a couple of the guys I had on my show, but one of the guys, Joe Frail, who is highly respected, and, and he has my respect as well. He's probably the best, most knowledgeable triathlon coaches in the world today. And he's no he's no teenager. He's uh, pushing 71 years old, I think now. Okay. Yeah. And he's written the Triathlon Training Bible. I think he just revised it. It just came out again. He's written a, a wonderful book on training beyond 50 years old. He wrote the um, Cycling Training Bible, Mountain Bike Training Bible, and the guy is a grip. I mean, he's an exercise scientist. And I was always troubled by the way he approached heart rate because he breaks it down not only in five zones, which is very common, but zone five has three segments, A, B, and C. And I was always troubled by that because when you get to a place where you're within 10% of your maximum heart rate, there's not a whole lot of adaptation change that occurs inside of that window. So, for example, let's just say that hypothetically, just for simple math, that your maximum heart rate is 190 beats per minute. 5A, B, and C. So 5A might be... Uh, 80, 186 beats per minute, and then 188 beats per minute, and then 190 beats per minute. Oh, that's exact. Yeah, well, and, and it was a little too exact, quite frankly. And so I had him on my show, the first time I got him on my show, and I told him, you know you know me, I, I say what's what I'm thinking. I said, Joe, I've been wanting to ask you this question for years because I'm I'm just completely confused by this. Tell me what the difference is in adaptation. I want to know what the adaptation is going to be different between 5A and 5B. And he stumbled on it for a little bit and he finally came out and goes, well, you know, I actually don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> he, he totally backed off of it. And I, and I, I thought, well, in my book, and I don't want to plug my book, but just I wrote it nine years ago. Let's just get, get it out, get out here. I said there's three things that you can focus on. You remember this conversation, right? Right. You're either doing something to improve your endurance, you're doing something to improve your lactate tolerance, which is above your threshold, or you're doing something to improve your mechanical skill sets. If you narrow your focus to those three things you're way, way, way ahead of the game. And 
identifying this point where you become anaerobic, when you're most beneficially aerobic, and what you're doing to enhance your skills, you can be a world beater with just that bit of information. And having tested athletes for over 20 years now, I mean, it, it, it boggles my imagination just thinking in terms of the numbers, the sheer numbers of athletes I've worked with. I saw this commercial where this guy does LASIK surgery. He says he did 10,000 procedures. In the I'm like, I'm doing the math, okay? I said he'd have to do 50 of these a day in order to make those numbers happen. But, I mean, in all honesty, I, I've literally tested thousands of athletes. And professional athletes, I told you I, I, did, I do work under contract for ESPN Sports Science, and they're always throwing me somebody unique, wheelchair athletes, soccer players, race car drivers. I've worked with boxers. I've worked with uh, entire hockey teams, professional hockey teams. I've tested everybody. And it comes back to the same simple things. It's, it, I don't care what it is you do. It comes down to those three things. So my book is all about simplifying those heart rate responses so that you get a sense of what you're trying to accomplish. And um, I'm ranting now, but at the end of the day, what I'm trying to get across is it doesn't need to be that complex. Most of the athletes I meet have no idea what the value is of being in zone four versus zone five. Yeah. It, it, just, it just comes across as confusing at first, and that's what I really loved about this class, man. You know, you could tell that you really cared, sat down with me, you sat down with every single person there, and would go through their results and explain it, just like you explained it to the previous person, but maybe that person had different questions, so you would stay around and listen to those new questions, and you just continually learn and learn and learn. Um, I, I'm... I'd also like to ask you a couple more questions Let's do it. before we come go. to the, the running deal. Well, first of all, you kind of have me curious now about how you train a NASCAR driver. What in the world kind of training were you doing with the NASCAR driver? Well, I wasn't training him. I was evaluating him. So this, oh. is, this is for ESPN Sports Science. And now you realize that, that that segment is about three minutes long, okay? Okay. And what they do is they're saying, okay, and, uh, his name was uh, Kanan, I think it you know, this guy's a world-renowned race car driver from Brazil. And they were trying to point towards the um, agility this, the fellow had, his endurance, and all the things you really need, which you would never believe you need, to be a great race car driver. So what we did with them is we did this reaction time test first. We had him, they had these, like, lights set up on this table and you know it lights up you swat it with your hand and so you're looking for reaction time right and so we did a fresh reaction time test and then they put them on the treadmill and then I did a VO2 test so I took them to maximum effort on the VO2 and immediately brought them down and put them back on the reaction time test and his reaction time worked faster and more efficiently after he was stressed which was the whole point was to... to oh, wow. Yeah, and of course he came to me later and was asking me for, for uh, training advice because he was also a triathlete. Uh, he, he's done Ironman before. And, and the guy was pretty fit. So it was unique, uh, interesting, uh, but it was really more TV. Uh, you know, I, I, did, I had a chance to see what a race car driver's fitness looks like. It wasn't a function of me teaching him anything, you know, other yeah. than maybe a little bit of a prescription after the fact, but... That's just an interesting kind of a niche uh, sport that no one ever thinks, uh, you know, how, how do those guys train. 
I would have guessed like it's all about slow twitch and fast twitch fibers in his in his brain as far as uh, reactionary skills go. But well, it is. That's, it that's is. fascinating. Yeah. Well, we you know I used to do testing for the L.A. Kings, uh, which is a professional hockey team, and we do a preseason evaluation. And I'd go through the entire roster. I'd, I'd test 52 professional hockey players in an eight-hour shift. And we also, aside from doing VO2 testing, we did Wingate testing, which is an anaerobic power test. It's 30-second all-out effort against 10% of your body weight. And um, this is really big, big information for hockey players because everything they do is inside of about 14 seconds worth of power effort. And it becomes a very, very important component of it. But the idea of looking at that power output in these athletes, uh, you know, look at it as a random sampling of very fit athletes in the range of uh, 18 to 34 years old. I look at it like a research study, right? And yeah, then, I, know, I know you love the numbers, man. You must have loved that just from stats and numbers-wise. Well, I, I'm not a hockey fan. And, you know, to me, quite frankly, it's like meat on the hoof. You know, I'm, I'm working as a butcher in a butcher shop. They're throwing me meat, and I'm dealing with it. And uh, I, right after having done all that work the first year, I start tuning into the games because I wanted to see how the players were performing relative to the stats that I got from them. And what was really interesting, and I'll probably catch some crap for this somewhere along the way if he happens to hear it, uh, Luke Robitaille, who is you know a, a world-renowned professional hockey player, uh, his VO2 score was was troubling. I mean, it, it just wasn't wasn't what it should be. I thought. Uh, interestingly enough, he complained about the score. He said, you know, the coach called me and said, hey, we got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, Luke's not happy with his VO2 score. I said, ask Luke if he wants me to blow in the pipe for him next time. <laughs> uh, oh, it's not something you can help, man. Even I could have told you that. The point I'm trying to get at is is the 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 broad scope of evaluations, you know, you start to develop some opinions about what will work, what won't work, and what kind of paradigms need to be put together for their training. But let's talk about you again. You said you had some questions. Let's go to Yeah, that. yeah, I'm sorry. I derailed us with my ADHD. I'm sorry. And the, uh, so something that was super fascinating to me that I hadn't heard before was about lactate and lactic acid and how you broke it down on me. Look, before I came into this class, I always thought, hey, you build up lactic acid in your muscles as you work out, and then you pee it out. You know, like, especially when you foam roll or you massage, you usually pee out the lactic acid. And that's where you corrected me. You said, no, actually, it's, it, it starts off as lactate, first of all, and that your body, you'll breathe out a lot of it, and yes, you will pee out a little bit, but your body can also conserve some of it in different parts of the body as fuel for later on. So it, it, that's something I never heard of before. Can you like, explain that to everyone? Uh, I think it's okay. extremely fast. So first of all, there's no lactic acid. There's no subcomponent of lactate that would be referred to as acid. It's just a term people like to use because of the acidic effect that occurs when you're exposed to a lot of lactate. So to back up, lactate is a natural production of, of work or metabolic byproduct. I'm sitting here, you're sitting there, we are producing lactate. It's just that it's very manageable lactate and it's being processed, it is a usable fuel source, it, it, it just kind of floats around in our body and it's manageable. And 
what happens when we start to exercise is we punch up the production of lactate. And then it gets to a place where the lactate becomes so dominant within the muscle structure that it becomes a problem. And what happens is when you produce a lot of lactate, there's a hitchhiker that comes along with the lactate, which is hydrogen ions. And hydrogen is really acidic. It becomes an irritant on the nerve endings. And it's actually believed to be one of the principal results of the central nervous system trying to keep you from overworking, trying to keep you from harm's way. I can't prove that, but I'd like to believe that along with Tim Noakes' central governor theory that the lactic acid production or lactate uh, infusion into the muscle is a way to slow things down, to keep you from harming yourself. But at the end of the day, what you were alluding to, and just to be clear about it, you can get to a place where you get more comfortable and processing that lactate production. And what happens is you'll, it's called a lactate shuttle system. Your body will take that uh, overload of lactate and do one of two things with it. You're either going to blow it off, you're gonna, it's, gonna, it's converted to carbon dioxide and it'll be blown out through respiration. Uh, think of it as a relief valve. Or you'll shove it off into parts of the body that are rested, that are not doing the work. And in that state, it'll sit there and then eventually be processed back into your bloodstream, into your liver, converted to sugar, and then back into the regional muscles that need the, the energy to produce more work, which is principally why the triathletes that are able to perform at these high rates of work for uh, beyond four hours are able to do what they do because they're not at that high-intensity burning fat. You're not going to be burning fat in the absence of oxygen. And these guys that are pounding out, you know, 30-mile-an-hour bike splits for four, four-and-a-half, five hours, they're, they're I won't say they're completely anaerobic, but, but, they're, but they're highly acidic at that point in time. So they need to be able to process that lactate. And um, that tends to be the answer. Uh, it's not a function of storing more sugar. It's not a function of being able to access more fat. It's a function of turning this lactate into a usable fuel source. See, that, that was that was so fascinating to me. I I only ever heard, I excuse me, I have only ever heard a uh, you know the general theory about what lactic acid is and how it goes. But you really broke that down. That's really fascinating. But keeping along those same terms, uh, as we were going through my results, you mentioned lactate tolerance training, right. which I'd never heard of. Now this sounds like kind of sounds like hit interval training. But can you kind of uh, walk us through what is lactate tolerance training? It's really interesting. I wrote a piece on this. I refer to it as training the dark side. And this innocuous, seemingly no man's land of energy transfer is actually the secret to performance. It's really simple to prescribe a workout that is going to improve your endurance. All you got to do is slow down and keep people in an aerobic state. But clearly, if you're hoping to win a race, you're not going to be able to stay aerobic unless your competition really sucks. Right? Yeah. If they're pushing, they break a leg. If they're pushing on you, um, you're going to have to get up there and you're going to have to take it. 
And so lactate tolerance training is essentially that, teaching your body to become more efficient in its ability to process and uh, flush the lactate from the working muscles, uh, conserve some of that lactate for, for later hours in the training or racing. We could talk about that for hours on end. And I I think that the way I approach it is unique. And because I'm looking at the lactate production and I'm looking at the consequence, the respiratory consequence of the test, I can prescribe a pretty a pretty strong approach to training and to improve your capacity to improve that lactate tolerance. And honestly, I think that that's the most complicated uh, component of this training process. Can, can you give us an example of what a, a lactate tolerance training program, like just one day, a workout of the day, how would something like that look well, like? Well, it's interval-based for the most part, and it's a function of, I like to use the analogy of trying to learn to swim underwater. Realize that when you're underwater, you're hypoxic, and if you were to say, I'm going to try to cover uh, a length of a pool, and, you know, let's say it's a 50-yard pool, and your first few attempts might be that you can stand or water but have to come up twice or three times before you cross the pool. You're getting that air, and that air is helping to, you're, well, two things are going on. First of all, you don't immediately take air in. What you try to do is rid yourself of the carbon dioxide. So you blow out before you suck air when you come up from under, underneath the water, right? Right. You get rid of it, then take air and go underneath. But the the important element in that respiratory consequence is you're getting rid of that carbon dioxide. And I'll, I'll credit Jack Daniels, and if you don't know who Jack Daniels is, he's a world-renowned uh, running coach. And I attended a, a lecture he gave, and he said that, if you were to put someone in a safe and lock the door and when they die, it's a horrendous death. And it isn't because they are lacking oxygen. It's the carbon dioxide that's being produced in that environment. That they're breathing it is out. Excruciating. It's excruciatingly painful. And then slowly that lack of oxygen will, will, will cause your death. But... It isn't so much in sport the lack of air that is causing the problem. It's the 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 culmination of that lactate or, or lactic acid, as you suggested, that causes the problem. The carbon dioxide production is causing the problem. So what what you want to do when you do these intervals is you want to look at it. And another crazy analogy I like to use is the flu shot. It's think of lactate tolerance training as getting a flu shot. You're getting a little bit of the virus and your body will eventually adapt to that 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 virus. And so when you do if you do manage to catch a flu, it's not that big a deal. Your body yeah, builds build up an immunity to it. But what you don't want to do to try to develop an immunity is give somebody the flu cuz you're just sick, right? Yeah. So you need to get a little bit of it. So your lactate tolerance training is, is about getting exposed to this ensuing lactate production for a period of time and then getting a bit of a respite. We're able to um, flush some of it away, but not all of it away. 
and then come back and get exposed again. And then it becomes a function of progressive greater lengths of time that you're exposed to it, lesser amount of time being um, freed from it. So in other words, the aerobic component of the process. Thus so, making more endurance gains, right? So Yeah, so for example, like let's just say that in your case, uh, you're completely anaerobic at 170 beats per minute, all right? And, and you're, I think, I don't recall, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I want to say that you were like between 140, 150, 160, something like that. For the uh, aerobic base yeah, development, yeah, yeah. you gave me 150 to 160. Okay, so that, that sounds right. So at about 160, you're still aerobic. At 165, there's no appreciable value in that aerobic element of things. At 170, you're completely anaerobic. So I would probably schedule for you, and I probably did, about 155 beats per minute is the recovery, and about 170 beats for the top end of that interval. And I would have you probably initially be on a 3 to 1 ratio, so three times the amount of time aerobic versus one uh, time anaerobic. So let's just call it minutes, 3 to 1, three minutes aerobic, one minute anaerobic. So you're getting a, an inoculation, you're recovering, you're, you're coming back up again, and then Progressively over time, I might change it to two to one. I might have it be one to one. I might have the lower end number come up a bit. So instead of 155, maybe now 160. I might have the top end number go up a bit, maybe 175. So basically we're encroaching upon a, a more acidic environment and having less solution to rid it. But we're training our body to contend with it more efficiently over time as opposed to just you know deciding, okay, I know that I'm anaerobic at 170, so I'm going to go to 180, and I'm not going to let myself recover. And that that process will probably not teach your body to adapt. It'll just take you out. You're just basically getting in the fire and getting burned. That's that makes a, sense. That's just like the flu uh, the flu vaccine yeah. analogy you're using, man. That's that's perfect. You want to build up that resistance to it little by little to where you're able to. Uh, work in that environment more efficiently that, that makes sense so let me let me get on to sunday too in the because i still have more questions the uh the running clinic was uh fantastic on sunday is when you actually meet up at the track and this is where rich will video you and analyze your running and break it down in slow motion and once again everyone's watching everyone's results so you're learning from one person after another it's really hard to just learn from one person if you're just taking it by yourself. But it's it, the knowledge you take away from this is expounded exponentially because you're watching other people's mistakes, and so you'll be cognizant of it as if you do it. That's one thing I liked. So <laughs> my, I thought I wasn't heel striking. I thought I wasn't overstriding. And then Rich showed me on, uh, he showed me on the video in slow motion it was hilarious because he he was he was completely honest and he felt he actually felt bad for me. He was just drawing lines in the, where my angles are going wrong, where I'm heel striking here and pronating over there, and then uh, pretty soon with all the lines he had drawn on my video, he just scratched me out and he goes, "Well, he's got a good personality." <laughs> <laughs> that was I'm still laughing about that's hilarious, man. But uh, but it, it absolutely you can't you can't uh you can't respute the results, like there, there it is. I'm on video, and sure enough, I'm heel striking. I'm overstriding. Okay, now what can we do about it? 
and then you really helped us. Uh, we did different drills, and you broke it down, and it feels really, really weird to come down on your midfoot and to start improving how uh, I'm moving my elbows. I thought I had a good arm swing, and then I realized, hey, you showed me where I'm dropping my arm, and I'm losing that momentum. It should be like you're elbowing the guy behind you. So now that I've started implementing that, you know, it is it, it is awkward. I wanted to ask you, but it's really hard making that transition into the midfoot. You know, a, after you explained why it's so efficacious to do that and why it's it's more benefit and how it'll help injury prevention, um, I, I I've been I've been doing it. And I, I have a question for you too. The it seems like so that my right foot, my right foot, y'all, uh, sticks a little bit off to the right. It's a little duck footed. And so I'm trying to work on straightening that, but for whatever reason, when I'm midfoot striking, the top of my, the top of my foot is hurting, and I believe that might go back to what you were saying before, like, hey, you're gonna have to ease into this new style of, of running. Could it be because my maybe my arches aren't ready for that kind of, uh, that kind of load? They're not used to that. Well, that you should yeah. ease into that, or so you might recall that. The very first thing I did on Sunday was prepare people for the dangers of making a transition inefficiently. And so I think what I said was, let's assume that you're you're a training athlete that may be putting in 30, 40 miles a week of running, and now I've completely changed the dynamic of the way you're approaching the ground, and we're invoking contractions and stress in different regions of your body, ligaments and tendons and musculature that are now needing to work that were not working before, and they're not accustomed to the load. And so making a big transition like that and not backing up a little bit is just, it, it's just a recipe for disaster. You're going to hurt yourself. So... It is not unusual for people to find some discomfort, uh, and I'm trying to be careful to separate the, the term discomfort from pain because it should not be painful to make these transitions. It could be uh, uncomfortable. You could have some soreness the next day because, you know, just like going into the gym and doing a big workout that you haven't done in a long time, you know, you're in the bag for a few days. So you have to be careful to be able to distinguish the difference between what's too much or or what's not enough. And so I was very clear, and I'm, I'm going to make, for those that are listening, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be clear again. Don't go out and pound it out and assume that because you're doing things right now that it, you're going to be okay. Because you could be doing things absolutely precise and perfect, but you're just not ready for it. It's just like, you know, I can give you a thousand reasons why barefoot running is good for you and it's more it's more efficient for you. But if you go out and try to run a marathon on concrete, you're going to be, a, well, first of all, you're probably not going to make it. <laughs> you're probably going to get 10, 10 miles deep and you're going to need new feet uh, because you're just not prepared for it. You're not conditioned to it. So there's a certain amount of conditioning that needs to occur and there's a, you know there's steps you need to take, and we you know we talked about those steps. But um, at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't surprise me you're having that problem. There are some exercises you could do that would help you. 
to, you know, you do you evert your your right foot, I think it was, uh, everts a bit when you run. Yes, sir. You're going to find that simply leading more with your knees is going to help to right the ship, so to speak. You're going to start finding that your foot's going to land more neutrally. And uh, and first of all, you, you do tend to land okay, you, but you circumduct. You, you're getting this little half-circle sweep that you're doing to bring your foot around to right the ship, so to speak. But that yeah. lends you towards this late-stage pronation, which is also problematic and could end up in, in some pain in the, in the foot as well. So it's a process, but, and, you know, there's a lot of people that will go out there and say, well, look, I run great. Uh, why would I want to change? I've always run on my heels. It's worked out for me. I run pretty well. Um, but it's inefficient. I, well, th- that's that's the thing you got into, man. That's what I love uh, of how you explained it. That's a good question. Okay, why should I change it? Well, you show me, look, the more ground contact you have, the more power you're going to be able to push off. You You break this stuff down as to, why this is beneficial. You're not just out there saying, look, you just need to do this because you'll be faster. You're like, look, well, let me show you. It's really simple. The more foot you have on the ground, the more power you're going to have to be able to project yourself forward. And so you would you would break this down, and, and that is a major benefit, man. Uh, you know, not all coaches do that. Well, i got to tell you, I just downloaded a uh, a research study that they conducted about the elastic energy potential that occurs when you midfoot run versus heel strike. And I've been telling this to people for years. Uh, and I probably was lending hypothesis, understanding how this structure works and believing that the opportunity that exists when you do come off your midfoot first, as opposed to heel striking, there's opportunities that exist that does not occur when you land on your heel. And lo and behold, a research study just been conducted that's proving it now, which I found fascinating. I, I, as a matter of fact, Dr. Emily Spleckel just did a live uh, Facebook rant on this very topic. And you know, Emily and I are good friends, so I, I said, Emily, send me that study. And just before we got onto this podcast, I received it, and I, I've been uh, pouring through it. But really, really fascinating how this um, the difference between heel striking versus midfoot running. There's an absolute departure in opportunity between the two. So uh, it validates a lot of what I've been telling people. And I'm telling you, you're always going to get a naysayer. I mean, the shoe industry is having so much fun with heel strikers and have had for the past 25, 30 years because they put that mattress out there, and it, it's like um, they're in the mattress, mattress business. You know, what what kind of mattress do you like? This mattress. How much cushion can you get under yeah, your foot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to sleep better if you lay on this foot. You know, it's it's just uh, it's it's terrible. And at the end of the day, you you really need to get to good structure, good function, and that's kind of what I try to teach people. Yeah, please please share that that study, man. That's I will. Really interesting. I'd love to see that. Yeah. And you're right. There is always, there is always naysayers, and there's. I mean, that goes along with anything, though. In any profession, any industry, there's always going to be uh, one counter argument to another. And it's interesting to learn all that. But the way you word it and the way you explain it to me, man, makes more physical common sense. Uh, I think it's very easy to overcomplicate something like that, right? Right. Well, again, I I'd like to believe that I I I work in an evidence-based world. If I can't prove it, I'm not going to say it. I like to be logical, and I like to bring things to the table that people are going to have a hard time refuting. Generally, that's 
that's what I've been doing. So I don't get a lot of naysayers after they visited. I, I suppose the people that don't believe in what I do just don't show up. That, that could very well be the case. But for whatever it's worth, the audience that I meet and, and work with are, are, are benefiting. And, and I know that to be true, which is keeping me in the game. So much of this training is, uh, you know, racing up and down hills and mountains. And so you took us out and we found some incline. Not as much grade as you wanted, but we found some grade. And uh, you even had Miguel Medina there, and he's a mountain goat. He's incredible. And so we were running these drills and trying to work on our form going up and downhill, not just at a track. That was fantastic, and that's specific to uh, OCR, you know, cross country. Those are the scenarios we're always in. We're never on a track. So I loved how we you broke it down into different fields, different types of terrain, that was a that was a big deal. This is the perfect time of the year to start working on this kind of stuff because it's the off season, and and a lot of us in OCR man train with coaches where they're not in person. You know, they're in another state or online. So to have someone there with as much experience as you have to be able to guide you through and pick apart your form is is I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to do that. Well, at, the end, the, at the end of the day, what we try to do is. Uh, I refer to it as flat response. So you're not being influenced by the environment. In other words, you don't have a hill getting in the way of the way you're trying to run. Um, you got to start there. If you can't run well on flat ground, you're not going to run better when you get on a hill. Um, so we begin with flat response, and then we start working on all the attributes of what we believe to be proper running mechanics. And once we got that working, then we're going to go to the challenges. We're going to start finding various challenges, up and downhill running, running over craggy surfaces. How you get the movement accuracy working for you? How do you contend with these different environments? What variation in cadence and circumstance do you, do you apply? And, and so that's where we try to bring it together for the OCR community. But Yeah, uh, I, I would say approach this also with an open mind. You know, hey, are, are you Ryan Atkins? Are you Hobie Call or Jonathan Albin? Are you, are you the best in the world? Then you probably have room to improve. And like everything in life, man, it's great to see another see things from another set of eyes and uh, to be able to learn how to improve. So come with a, a, an open mind and don't think that, hey, man, I've been running. I'm fine the way I'm running. If you approach it with an open mind, you'll learn so much. Yeah. Well, it's good stuff. I want to I wanna thank you. I enjoyed meeting you. I always like to talk to you. I want to say happy Thanksgiving to everybody that's listening. Uh, I'm going to try to get this show up today. If not, a belated Thanksgiving holiday cheer for all you. And I know that your family left you and you're home alone for Thanksgiving. What are you going to do for dinner? You know, I don't know yet, man. Oh, I eat dude. pretty healthy. To be honest with you, I'm going to have to find a place that's open. I I open the freezer to look at what meat I have and then cook some dinner. Uh, you know, I don't want to have to clean up the dishes afterwards either. Somebody I in the Dallas go... area needs to get a hold of Miles and bring him to dinner, man. It's Thanksgiving. <laughs> he shouldn't do this alone. Now, I appreciate you having me on the show, man. Like I said, Rich, I could talk to you all day long, man. There's just some people in life you meet. They're just really nice guys, very easy to talk to. And anytime you meet someone who's super passionate about their profession, or that's usually how it became their profession is because they're passionate about it, you could talk to that person forever and ever and ever about it because they just know so much, man. It's like a gold mine of knowledge and the just athletics, and period, man. So I thank you. It's all good stuff. 
Thank you, Miles. I, I, I was going to say enjoy your Thanksgiving, but I, I'm feeling bad for you, man. You catch a plane, come on out. We're gonna we're gonna go. Actually, we're gonna go to a dinner. We're not gonna we're not doing it here to this year. We we usually do every year, but this year we're gonna we're gonna let somebody cook for us. Yeah, but, I love the West Coast, man. Yeah. I'll come see you. All right, you know I'll, I'll hook you up. Take care, bro. Awesome, brother. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.